Greetings, this is J.R. Dickey. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And by the way, don't forget our website, graceandtruth.net. I hope you're having a great day, but if not, hang with me. It's about to get better. Okay, we're going to begin a grand journey through the book of Revelation, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Here goes. First, the subject of prophecy has been the endeavor of liars, lunatics, and true lovers of God since it first began to be spoken and recorded. For the liars, it has been a tool for deception and self-interest. For the lunatics, it's ultimately a tool of pathetic discredit and nonsense. For those who sincerely love and seek to understand God's word, it serves to guide, instruct, and encourage. Now, the principles to understand prophecy are not complicated, nor are they restricted, as some assert, to scholarly mediators, mysteries, or magi. God has always been willing to give necessary wisdom for hearing the message he conveys in his word to those who seek him with all their hearts. Now, highlighted below are seven of them. First, Principle number one, let the word of God interpret itself. Like a marvelous tapestry, the scriptures are integrated and complete. Careful study of the whole Bible reveals a consistent revelation throughout. God's word is perfectly inspired. Translations, however, are not. Principle number two, God's key focus in prophecy is Israel, the nation, the people, the capital, and especially the Savior. Of course, there are prophecies concerning other people and nations, but only because of their relationship to Israel. Principle three, God is consistent with his word. Key imagery does not mean something in one prophecy and something else in another. Principle four, Pay special attention to the first mention in the Bible of important words, phrases, and or imagery for significance and broader understanding. Compare them with other scriptures for confirmation or correction of your impressions. Principle 5. Be aware of the subtle tendency toward the erroneous influence of what we call substitutionalism. Misguided teachers of Scripture all the way back to the 3rd and 4th centuries have claimed that the promises of God to Israel became those of the church since the Jews rejected Christ, and that is not so. That teaching is heretical and demeaning of God. Nevertheless, the overt and sometimes subtle tendency of most what I'll call Gentile believers is to interpret prophecy to varying degrees in that exact mindset. Principle 6. Hey, you know what? There's no fluff or filler in the Bible. Every word is included for a purpose. Again, you should not put faith in the myriad translations so much as the original languages. Of course, this means study and discernment of intent. Principle 7. There are no 
contradictions in Scripture, though some who are misguided by translations or assumptions of context would claim the contrary. No faithful instruction on prophecy will contradict the Scripture or lead to new Scripture. Okay, that's our introduction. Now we'll get started on chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1. I've entitled it, Our Lord in Glory. Since it was first revealed, this book has brought tremendous encouragement and controversy. It speaks of the indescribable majesty of our risen Lord and the utter depravity of a Christ-rejecting, hellish world. In its message, we'll see God Almighty upon his throne and the debauched Satan sitting in rebellion upon his. We'll be told of the course of events during the age in which the church faithfully spread the word and when she failed by corrupting its message. We'll see that there have been those in the church who were true, and sadly those who were twisted, those who hungered for God, and those who craved the rewards of the God of this world, the devil. The book of Revelation, however, is primarily focused upon that age and upon two theaters of action those we call heaven and earth, which explode with the most amazing, beautiful, terrifying, catastrophic activities during the upcoming and final days of the creation as we know it. Intuitively, we've always recognized this and consequently reacted or, should I say, interpreted the revelation based upon our personal expectations hopes, and desires concerning that end, rather than looking to the entirety of the Bible for its own interpretation of the amazing story herein. Men have sometimes butchered the book and based their teaching of it on fantasy or self-interest. Others have played it safe, so to speak, and simply cited scholars from earlier times whose language is flowery and full of praise, but still leaves us guessing. And so it remains somewhat mysterious to the overwhelming majority of us, but it should not. I won't attempt to explain the myriad opinions that surround the parts of this book. Time would fail me. Neither do I consider that what I'll offer to you for your prayerful consideration as any kind of final word. Rather, I encourage you to read with as much objectivity as you can, and then search the scriptures to see if these things be so. If you're reading this, it's likely that you already sense or truly believe that we are living in the final hour of the age preceding Christ's return. You know the days are short, and that the consequences of being unaware of the times is dire, to say the least. On the other hand, the blossoming blessing of anticipating as a believer the return of our King is what the Scripture says actually hastens His coming. I hope you'll find the fullest 
bloom of that joy herein, even if it's in the midst of tribulation. So we begin. The Bible says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. The revelation is the great taking off the lid. It is the disclosure of Jesus Christ, but it came straight from the Father, God Almighty, who gave it to Jesus to show his servants. It's not intended for his enemies or those who in ignorance consider themselves neutral. Although the span of earthly time this book covers is lengthy from our perspective, its beginning is even at the time of its delivery, and thus the phrase shortly take place. To signify is to mark or show, and we will indeed see that this is a true audio-visual experience for the Apostle John, not to mention spiritually overwhelming As a result, he bore witness to three things, what God said, what Jesus Christ personally exhibited, and all the visions he saw. The scripture continues, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. With 66 books in our Bible, This is the only one that promises a blessing to those who, should I say, digest it. The requirement is not that you simply scan its contents or peruse it in a scholarly fashion. You can't simply flip through its pages. Neither can you just tear through it with your Greek lexicon and expect the blessing. Though lexicons are important. You must read, hear, and keep. Let me repeat that. You must read, hear, and keep. That is, you must know again, understand, and prevent escape. That's what those words mean. There's a sense in which reading itself is knowing something again, perhaps a confirmation of something you already knew deep within your heart. It also implies the value of reading the text over and over. Understanding is more than knowing. It's when the light goes on, the great aha. And keeping is critical, for everything in this sin-filled world works to take away that aha and replace it with a ho-hum You must prevent the escape of that understanding into the abyss of apathy. But you won't do that if you figure the time is far away, will you? Fortunately for every sincere believer, the time is indeed near and always has been. That's because you are not rooted in this world. God's servants know that their home is in His presence and Really, it's only a heartbeat away. The Bible continues. 
John to the seven churches which are in Asia. John's ministry was far greater than these seven literal congregations, and in no other epistle do we find an address to multiple specified churches in this manner. It is not clear that John even ministered personally to all seven, so why address this missive to these seven and deal with them individually in the next two chapters? Why not an individual letter to each, as virtually all the other epistles do, or a general letter, as with James or Jude or John's other missives? Apart from this distinctive, we'll see that the revelation is different from every other letter of the New Testament in another way. As we have already read, this is the only epistle which records its divine origin. It says for itself that it came specifically from Father God and Jesus Christ. A fine point, I know, but it is not directed by John to an audience all of whom he had ministered to, nor is it addressed to the general assembly of the believers everywhere. Significantly, it is directed specifically by Jesus as an important part of his revelation. Therefore, to interpret it as being only a literal message to those historical congregations is really missing the point. The audience itself is a revelation. The Bible continues, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Here is the greeting from Father God and the Holy Spirit. Yes, it says seven spirits. Now this may be the sevenfold spirit that is described in Isaiah 11 too, but I'm much more inclined to believe just what it says, which indicates that the Holy Spirit is seven, and yet we know from other scriptures that he is one. After all, the Trinity itself is three in one. This also aligns with the next two chapters, in which the Spirit, or one expression of the Spirit, speaks to each of the seven churches. The Bible continues, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Here is the greeting from Jesus, past, present, and future. Faithful witness speaks of his perfect life and ministry to Israel. Firstborn from the dead is clearly his resurrection and status in heaven until his return. And ruler over the kings of the earth is equally ruler over the leaders of Israel. Here's where we must introduce a principle of prophetic understanding and theological truth in general. In the writings of some of the early church fathers was a heretical doctrine that spread to influence church teaching for nearly 1,700 years. It is called substitutionalism. Oh, it's a big word for a simple but very erroneous concept. It simply was the notion that after Christ's death and resurrection, God was through with the Jews. 
It is true that God brought judgment to the people of Israel for rejecting his son, and it is true that the primary witness to the world after that point has been the mostly Gentile church. But it is heresy to teach that God's promises, his stated commitments prophetically to his chosen people, have ended or even altered. That makes God a flake, a precocious deity, and short-sighted. It positions him as scrambling to somehow make things right when we fail, managing the cosmos by putting out fire, so to speak. It's an insult to his omniscience and character. Nevertheless, throughout the church age, this travesty of evil, of self-serving narcissistic view, has permeated so much theological understanding that even when it is acknowledged as wrong, it still slithers its way into our teaching from time to time. Having said that, let me forewarn you that a lot of what we'll study in Revelation, though it can often be appropriated or appreciated by the church, is only understood in the context of keeping Israel as the focal point of its prophecy. Okay, in many other portions of prophetic scripture, the earth refers to the land of Israel. The word world, on the other hand, refers to the whole world and often implies the Gentile nations, as does the sea. As the church has been far and away comprised of Gentiles, we've lost a handle on prophetic types or imagery like this, partly due to this substitutionalism. The Bible continues, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Isn't it just amazing that Christ would do this for slobs and losers like you and me? He loved us, laved us, and laid on us the last thing we ever deserved, a royal and holy relationship with Father God. The Bible continues, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so. Amen. When Jesus literally ascended into the clouds of heaven after his resurrection, an angel present told the disciples that he would return in like manner. And when he comes, everyone will see him. It won't be done secretly or in some remote location hidden from view. It will not only be in plain view, but it will be like lightning crashing from one end of the sky to the other. Well, who was it that pierced him? It was the Romans who were ruling over the land of Israel at the time, and vicariously it was the Jews who insisted on his execution by way of crucifixion. Indeed, the tribes of the earth, again, speaks of the tribes of Israel. For we read in Zechariah 12.10, it says, And I will pour on the house of David 
and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And it continues, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. With John's epistle-like intro, you may have lost track of the true source of this message. So God makes it crystal clear. It's almost like he's looking over John's shoulder, watching him write. And he continues, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. Many of the people for whom this message is given were or will be in great trial. Most of the people of that part of the Roman Empire in John's day would have been aware of the conditions on Patmos. There's really nothing like it in our modern penal systems. Even the Russian gulags are tame by comparison. They had tried to poison John, but he didn't die. Then they tried to boil him in oil, and he still didn't expire. Now, if you're a Caesar of Rome, what do you do? The guy won't die, and it's embarrassing. So you put him on a rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea with a bunch of your worst criminals and torturous conditions. Surely you can shut him up there. Patmos was the Alcatraz of the Roman Empire. Thus John starts his letter with a word of empathy for all who suffer for the cause of Christ. The scripture continues, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Everything up to this point was penned as an introduction by John post-facto, after he received the revelation. But now it begins. Evidently, John was meditating in prayer and or worship when he heard the voice of a trumpet giving him the heads up on who was speaking to him. Then came the directive to scribe everything he saw and to send it to the seven specific churches. The Lord spoke through Isaiah, Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. That's Isaiah 58.1. In parts of this book, the Lord will be doing the same thing. As for the voice coming from behind him, we're reminded of another word given to Isaiah, which is, And though the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teachers will not be moved into a corner any more. But your eyes shall see your teachers. Your ears shall hear a word behind you, saying, This is the way. Walk in it. 
whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. That's Isaiah 30, 20, and 21. So, with the appearance and direction of these first words, we are already given a foreshadow of their purpose. Transgression, adversity, and affliction. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. Later in this book, we will read that Jesus is the candle or lamp, which in the original language specifically speaks of a light that is set on a lampstand. So, here we have seven stands that are designed for displaying Jesus as this light and they are indeed golden. Gold in the Bible pictures or is associated with royalty and faith. We'll see in a moment that this fits as well. Additionally, in the middle of those are someone who looks like an earthly figure of Jesus, and he's clothed as a king. The Bible continues, His head and hair were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Each part of Christ's glorified appearance is important. The whiteness of his head and hair speaks of purity of thought. His flaming eyes speak of the penetrating insight and thus the understanding he has. The brass appearance of his feet speaks clearly of judgment, and it's a fiery judgment. The sound of his voice, as of many waters, speaks of trouble. David wrote in Psalms 18, He sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. And in Psalms 93, we read, The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. And of course, the first many waters we recall from Scripture is the flood of Noah's Ark that covered the earth. So why does the Lord's voice sound like this? Later in the book, we'll note other situations in which a voice or voices sound like many waters. But here, it is possibly because judgment and tribulation are on his mind. On its own, many waters can refer to the sea, to the Gentiles, The noise is like the crashing waves of the ocean. Well, the Bible continues. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. We'll see in a moment what these stars represent, but here it's significant to note that they are in his right hand. This speaks of ownership, authority, and control. Out of his mouth goes forth his word, 
which, as the book of Hebrews says, pierces into the heart of man. And when you look at him, it's blindingly brilliant. This is no sweet Jesus or cute little lamb, but mere glimpse of the glorified state of the creator of all things, seen and unseen, the risen judge and ruler of all the cosmos. It's an absolutely overwhelming sight for John. And the Bible continues. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I live and am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. John collapsed, evidently in fear of the awesomeness of Christ. In tender mercy, Jesus reached out his nail-pierced hand and laid it on his disciple, told him not to fear, and then told him why. The power behind fear is death, but Jesus conquered death and in the process took possession of the keys to death and hell. But what's that amen doing there in the middle? Doesn't that just come after prayers? Actually, amen means firm and implies trustworthy. In chapter 3, we'll see Jesus call himself the amen. Here it's Jesus saying, John, believe it. It's firm and trustworthy. And the scripture continues, Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Pay attention to this, he's saying. This is the divine outline for the revelation. The things which you have seen is Jesus in the midst of the golden candlesticks holding the seven stars. It's the risen, glorified Son of God. In other words, chapter 1. The things which are is the church age which John was just at the beginning of and which we are at the conclusion. This is covered in chapters 2 and 3. Then the things which will take place after this will begin in chapter 4. When will it take place? After this. What this? The things in chapters 2 and 3, the church age, after this or after these things, will run from chapter 4 to the end of the book and will cover the rapture, the throne room of heaven, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennium, and the new heaven and earth. Well, the scripture continues. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. This is really the introduction to chapters 2 and 3. We already know what the function of the churches is defined by what they are. Lampstands. They are made specifically to hold the lamp, Jesus Christ in a prominent place. When the church tries to be anything else, it falls short. 
Jesus is not standing in the midst of seven sports arenas, or seven country clubs, or seven polling booths, or, well, you get my drift. He's in the midst of seven golden lampstands made to put him on display, not themselves. And the seven stars, the angels, if you consider the fundamental function of a star, just as we did with the lampstand, we note that a star, more than anything else, is known for shining in the darkness. Jesus said in the Gospels that while he was in the world, he was the light of the world, and he is also known as the bright and morning star. In addition, he told those who believed in him that they too were the light of the world. When Jesus was crucified, deep darkness covered the land, even though it was midday, and that darkness has continued in a spiritual sense ever since. In the next two chapters, a single angel is addressed for each church. In other scripture, we are told that the archangel Michael stands watch over the people of Israel. In like manner, it could be that these angels stand watch over their respective churches. The problem with this, however, is that each address from Christ clearly is meant for the congregation. And unless the angels are each members of the groups, the addresses then don't make sense. Since the Greek word for angel means messenger, some people think this may be referring to the pastor or teacher of each church. That seems to make sense, but it cannot limit the application of the addresses to the historical congregations. For we are told in chapter 22 that the whole book of Revelation is prophetic. As we study chapters 2 and 3, it will be evident that there was a historical application, but more importantly, what Jesus says to each church is intended to be heard by the whole church throughout the ages, and it serves as a prophetic description of the seven eras within the church age. So, as those who shine the light of the gospel in the dark world and those who are responsible to Christ for the spiritual care of the church, I'm inclined to think of the angel of each church as the historical pastor-teacher as well as each and every gospel-sharer since then in that particular environment or era. Of course, there are many stars in any group of sincere believers, aren't there? Daniel was told concerning his own people. Daniel was told concerning his own people, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. That's Daniel 12, 3. And Jesus has these stars in his right hand. That implies strength and control. The preaching of the gospel is only as effective as it is done in his strength, not by human schemes and means. The fruit is his doing as well. Now, just how well has the assembly of lampstands and the constellation of stars lived up to their structure and design? Have they been doing what they were made to do? Just what does Jesus, who is in their midst, 
have to say about it. What do his flaming eyes see? We'll find out in the next chapter. Now may the Lord grant you peace in the midst of any storm and faith to trust him. Look for our next podcast and may you realize more of his grace today.